Ontology, The Waystation of Red Pill Sanity Written by William Leo Translated by Deep L and a Human Read for you by Eric, Jenny, Mia, and many other bots Previously in the Ontology podcast series when Ayn Rand cast her vote for FDR, another future big shot emerged from a poultry farm in Wisconsin, who was to become the future Senator Joseph McCarthy. At the same time, Ayn Rand was a wanderer who first found her way to New York and California, with a little bit of achievement and a little bit of money, started to cultivate her social life. Her social circle consisted largely of intellectuals. The way she understood American society was totally different from those of McCarthy who relied on his experience and instinct. Season 2. Lords and Wanderers. Episode 5. New Deal Era America. Ayn Rand and Joseph McCarthy followed their respective trajectories into New Deal Era America. The New Deal was fundamental to America in the most fundamental sense, that is, to the empire of the United States. In pre-New Deal America, the government was essentially non-existent. It was more like old England of the 19th century, or even before the 18th or 17th century, like the England of the Tudors, in Huntington's words. This was a time when the government was largely non-existent. There were only various self-governing bodies in society, and the statutes and laws were a body of legal precedents established through competition and cooperation between the various self-governing bodies. Such a place simply does not have the conditions for an effective centralization of government, nor the intention of doing so. And the reason why Europeans looked upon America as a paradise, and Tocqueville and others worshipped it, was that in this place the state was invisible, as if society was entirely capable of governing itself which is also why people like Hegel and Spengler despised America. In their view, the fact that the United States was not a state at all, that it had a society without a state, meant that it was still in the early stages of social development, that only a more primitive society would have a society without a state, and that when it reached a more complex stage of development it was destined to produce a state. This was also the view of Charles de Gaulle, who later argued that the United States could not be considered a country, not only not a country, but even less a country than those places in Latin America that were much weaker and poorer than the United States, because Latin America at least had a European-style government, whereas the United States government was a mere ornament. Such an America could not have played a major role in world history. The key to this significant role lies in two events, the New Deal and the Second World War. Both of these events were the great achievements of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Before him, the United States, we cannot call it the United States, we can only call it the Federation, was more like Switzerland or a United Nations rather than like a country. It would have been more appropriate in medieval Europe than in the modern world ere the powers competed for supremacy. German generals and most Europeans believed that such a nominal state could exist only because it was so far from Europe and protected by the ocean. It would have survived in Europe in less than an hour before it would have been crushed to pieces by the generals and veteran soldiers of France and Germany. They did not see that in such a society is hidden a great Roman power, which, after FDR had strengthened the federal government through a system of welfare, would, if transformed into military power, make the rest of the world tremble under its feet. If you only treat this phenomenon as a dichotomy of the left and the right, you haven't grasped its full depth. The correct understanding is that it is in essence a Roman imperial nature. Its welfare system, fundamentally, 
is not about the issue of extracting money from capitalists to subsidize workers, nor is it about the bureaucracy inhibiting the vitality of the free market. Rather it is a movement to recreate community. Before the New Deal, there was not a really united country, but rather independent states with the states as the true motherland of its people, and it was only after the transformation of the United States through the hands of FDR that the difference between the United States and the world came to the fore. It was then, in the late World War II and the early 1950s, that American patriotism, that is, the particular patriotism based on the belief that, America is inherently different from the world, took off. It is no coincidence that McCarthyism also emerged at this time, under the name of the Un-American Activities Investigation. The American nation-building, like the Roman nation-building, was reflected in the United States' status as an arbiter of overseas affairs and its sudden involvement. Both of these things were conditions prepared by FDR before they became possible. If you look at it simply as a struggle between capitalism and socialism and ignore the special position of the United States in the world system, then you cannot explain the subsequent developments. One of the major consequences of America's entry into world affairs was that from then on there was to be a close interaction between the world political landscape and the American constitution. The interaction is always two-way. If you look at it as an outsider, what you see may be American interference in the world, a perception reflected in the cliché that the United States is always going to export liberal democracy, to the annoyance of Chiang Kai-shek, to the annoyance of Stalin, to the annoyance of Mao, to the annoyance of everybody. But on the other hand, this is actually a part of the impact of the world landscape on the United States. Because the United States became involved in the world, its local politics would no longer be a matter between states. The key reason for the failure of President Wilson's attempt to participate in the League of Nations was that the states of the U.S. had to deal with American politics according to the principles of local politics. They were not happy with the feedback and interference that world affairs posed to the domestic rules once the United States was involved in world affairs. But after World War II, this would inevitably arise. World War II required a united front, to unite all forces opposed to Germany and Japan, and so the anti-fascist united front was created. The anti-fascist united front was to have a corresponding impact on the domestic landscape of the United States. In the 1920s, the leftist intellectuals in New York were, if anything, only clownish caricatures. And those who were anti-establishment were mostly not leftist intellectuals, but in keeping with the American tradition, a tradition as described in Walden Lake, of extreme individualism, an almost anarchist individualism, advocated by people like H. L. Mencken, who was closer to the later leftist thinkers than to the tradition of Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson, the tradition of American-style extreme individualism. But after the 30s, in New York in the 30s, it was very difficult to find an intellectual who was not Jewish. If you wanted to find an intellectual who wasn't a Stalinist, nine times out of ten it was because he was a Trotskyist. Things were in this state when Ayn Rand was trying to find her feet in Hollywood and New York. How naive her understanding of the United States when she began her career, in addition to the vote for FDR, was also reflected in the fact that when she made statements against the Soviet Union in an attempt to blast those Hollywood leftist actors and intellectuals, she thought this was what she should do in the United States. As a result, she found that her editors and agents were very upset about her behavior. They told Ayn Rand that because the publishing market was basically dominated by leftists, if she publicly said bad things about Stalin in the United States, then her books would not sell, they would not even be published, and her career in Hollywood would also be hindered. 
When Ayn Rand first heard this at the time, she thought that her agent was very unprofessional and scolded him. But before long, after having changed a few agents, she found that her first agent did not exaggerate the graveness of the situation, but actually underestimated it. At this time, her self-reliant spirit began to take hold. She began to organize her own activities secretly in Hollywood in an attempt to convene a group of people who maintained the traditional spirit of the United States to combat the rampant communist infiltration movement. But in the process of organizing her activities, you can tell how much she was disconnected from American society. She had never been the same as McCarthy. The group she organized always consisted of intellectuals and intellectuals only. Although they were not left-wing intellectuals, they were exactly like their opposition left-wing intellectuals, they both had nothing to do with the civil society of the United States. How did the American people tolerate all this? Not because they believed in the leftist rhetoric, nor because they opposed leftist rhetoric, but because they were very ignorant of the left-wing doctrine and overseas affairs. People always learned something unfamiliar through labels. They could only vaguely repeat what their own elected president said, the Soviet Union is a democratic country, it is engaging in a deadly war against the Nazis, it is defending all the democratic countries in the world. Chiang Kai-shek is the leader of democracy in Asia. He is a Christian and is opposing the destructive actions of Japanese pagan warlords. The KMT has a democratic structure and Chiang Kai-shek is the leader of Chinese democracy, and as a Christian, he is a fortress of democracy in Asia. The leaders said so, the intellectuals also said so, and so people believed. What were the films produced by Hollywood like at this time in the 1940s? Ayn Rand was beside herself with anger because it described the romantic love of town teachers and musicians and portrayed the Soviet collective farm as an idyllic ranch. When Ayn Rand escaped from the Soviet Union, there were no large-scale death tolls through starvation yet. By the time such films were out, millions of people or even more had starved to death in the Soviet Union. However, the film made by the United States at the American public believe that the Soviet Union was such a paradise. At the same time, Pearl S. Buck and her KMT friends were engaging in the same propaganda targeting the U.S. public. Films like Dragon Seed, 1944, were made during the Second Sino-Japanese War. It also portrayed the impoverished Chinese countryside as a paradise and claimed that this paradise was destroyed by war as if they had been living in an idyllic ranch. These were actually the embodiment of the United Front. These practices had convinced the American public that helping Joseph Stalin and Chiang Kai-shek was righteous. The reason why they thought so was that they did not know Stalin nor Chiang Kai-shek so they let the leaders and intellectual elites fed them with misleading information and lead them astray. After the war, in Asia, the corruption and dictatorship of the national government of China suddenly exposed, meanwhile, in Europe, Stalin despised the treaty, enslaved and oppressed the Eastern European countries, and tore up the agreements he had made with the powers after Tehran conference. Because those behaviors were suddenly exposed, the American public felt deceived and was bewildered. At this time, the politicians and intellectuals who had deceived them suddenly disappeared from history like a balloon that had been punctured. Henry A. Wallace had been a hopeful successor to President Roosevelt, but in a few years, he could only get two million votes in his home base in New York. The well-known New York intellectuals in World War II quickly became the role that everybody wanted to beat up in less than five years. At this time, the United States entered the era of McCarthy, with figures such as Ayn Rand and McCarthy entering the stage at the same time. Thank you for listening. 
This is a podcast series produced by Luminous Society. Luminous Society provides you with an alternative historical narrative 